Well, hello again. This is a portion of our service where we turn to a book of the Bible, we open it up, we read it, and then we talk about what it means and how it ought apply to our life. If you've been here with us for a while, you know we are uh, doing a series in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to the book of Revelation, please. We are in chapter 22, the final chapter of the final book of Holy Scripture. I'm going to pray for us once more, asking God to bless our time in His Word, and then we will dive in. Father, the psalmist says that in Your light do we see light. In Your light do we see light. Would You give us light today? Would You, by the power of Your Spirit, through your scriptures and your feeble servant, would you shine light and help us to see? Would you give us clear sight of the glories promised to your people, of the hope laid before our hearts, of the assurance of these promised things that we might trust you. Would your light shine through all of the darkness and all of the suffering and all of the doubting and all of the reasons that we would have in our own minds to distrust you? Would you help us to believe either for the first time or all the deeper that we might abide until we would need faith no more? Father, help us to believe what you say through your word about the glories that are coming. In the name of Jesus, amen. Well, since we only have two more sermons in the book of Revelation, I figured this is my last chance to use Pilgrim's Progress one more time. So Pilgrim's Progress is a book written by John Bunyan who was 1600s, who was in, imprisoned for his faithfulness to Jesus, and he wrote this story, which is an allegory about the Christian life, about a pilgrim named Christian, who is warned by a guy named Evangelist that he is to flee the city of destruction and to head to the celestial city. Judgment is coming, and he needs to flee the world and flee to Christ. And the, the book is, it's, it's an allegory that walks through all these different scenes with all these different friends the Christian meets and all these foes that try to tempt him. And you see highs and lows. You see him do well. You see him fail. You see him be a Christian. All the while clinging to God's word, trying to make it home to the city that has been promised to him. Near the end, there's a, uh, near the end, there's a scene where he, he comes to the delectable mountains, which I didn't know what delectable meant, so I looked it up. It means delicious or beautiful. It's the beautiful mountains. Many believe that he's talking about the church in this scene because there's shepherds there. There's four of them. And they, they welcome shepherd, uh, they welcome uh, Christian and, and hopeful to these delectable mountains. And as you can see, it's near the end of the story. He's been going for a long time now. He's tired, it's been hard, but his hope is getting ever near. 
And he comes and he has this conversation with the, the shepherds. And the shepherds say, these mountains are Emmanuel's land. And they are within the sight of the city. He's almost there. Uh, and Christian says, is this the way to the celestial city? And he says, you are, you are well on your way. How far is it? It's too far for some. He says, is, it, is the way safe or dangerous? <laughs> it's safe for those to whom it is to be safe, but transgressors shall fall therein. And then the shepherds go on to warn him, and they show him the hill of error and the hill of caution and this, this byway to hell. All these detours along the way that so many have, have fallen down into and failed to persevere until the end. And then near the end of their time with the shepherds, it says, by this time the pilgrims had a desire to go forward, and the shepherds a desire that they should. So they walked together towards the end of the mountains. And then the shepherds had a surprise. Then the shepherds said to one another, let us here show the pilgrims the gate of the celestial city. The pilgrims then lovingly accepted the motion. So they had them, so they, yeah, they had them go to the top of a high hill called Clear. And they gave them there the glass to look. And it goes on to talk about how because of the weight of all the things that they had just seen with people falling away and this byway to hell, that it was hard for them to hold the looking glass. So their hand was shaking as they were looking through it. Yet they thought they saw something like the gate and also some of the glory of the place. So they went that way and they sang a song. And it goes on to, to talk about their song and about how they keep persevering and indeed they make it home. But I think it's important to notice there that one of the things that Pilgrim needed was he needed a fresh sight of the city that's to come. So he took him to a hill called Clear, where he could see, even if faintly, the hope that was to fuel his perseverance. I think it's exactly what the book of Revelation is, and particularly these final chapters where the Holy Spirit, through these visions given to John, take us to a hill called Clear and show us a land that is worth persevering for in a world that's very hard and in the midst of lives that are very challenging and have so many reasons to quit so that we would have courage to go out singing and to take another step toward the celestial city that is indeed to come. This is where we have been in the past couple weeks in our study in the book of Revelation. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 8, we saw a new heaven and a new earth, which we talked about as not an annihilation of this existing world, but rather a purification of it, in which evil will be eliminated and all hurts will be healed and tears and death will be removed. And then in chapter 21, verses 9 through 25, John expands and amplifies and develops that vision of this new heaven and the new earth. 
Last time we saw the picture of the, the temple and, and how God's presence fills it and God's people fill it and they are secure there and nothing will ever take them away. That's the celestial city that the pilgrim was running to this, this morning that we saw. Well, here in 22, 1 through 5, we see, we see this same scene, but it it's not so much framed as a city, now it's framed more like a garden, a garden that was lost long ago, that will be regained, but better. Revelation chapter 21. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life, with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will be there anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him, and they will see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads. And night will be no more, and they will need no light, light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. If you want to try and sum up this glorious text, it might be something like this, that God's people will dwell in his presence and delight in him forever. God's people will dwell in his presence and delight in him forever. Now, two things are going to be helpful for us as we, before we dig into the, the three points that we have this morning to kind of uh, process what God has given to us here. First thing, it's, it's helpful for us to remember that the book of Revelation can only be properly understood as a fulfillment of the promises of the Old Testament. We've been talking about this the whole way through, that there's some 500 allusions to the Old Testament. So the question that we've been repeatedly asking all the way through this study is, where is that in the Old Testament? Because we said that the best way to understand the book of Revelation is not so much to read the news, but to read the Old Testament. There is, this is the revelation of how Jesus fulfills all of the promises of of God. In the study of Revelation chapter 21 and 22, it's, it's hard to study it and, and to miss how um, undeniably linked it is to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in the Garden of Eden, where God, God's presence dwelt, where there was a tree of life, where there was a river of water of life with precious stones, where Adam and Eve dwelt with God and they walked with God and they served God and they worshiped God together with no shame. Then, of course, in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve sinned against God and God cursed the world and sent Adam and Eve out from the garden into a world now marked by sin and all of its effects with death and murder and envy and pain that just echo ever since the bite of that forbidden fruit. 
But the whole Old Testament is filled with the hope of mercy, that God sent them out with a promise that one is going to come and he's going to crush that stupid snake's head and he's going to fix everything. The whole Testament's filled with pictures and prophecies and promises about how a Messiah is going to come and save God's people. And of course, the Gospels show us that the hope of uh, all people is indeed Jesus, this promised one who came, who lived a perfect life, unlike Adam and Eve, unlike Israel, unlike anybody who's ever lived, died on the cross, the death they all deserved, and then rose from the dead. Then the book of Acts tells about how the gospel goes out to the ends of the earth. The epistles talk about how we now live under the lordship of Jesus. And now the book of Revelation shows us how Christ fulfills all of the hope of it. The whole thing points to him and the day when he will take us into a land that looks a lot like the former garden, but better. Matthew Henry, who wrote in the 1700s, he wrote this in his commentary on this section. He says, The heavenly state which was before described as a city called the New Jerusalem is here described as a paradise alluding to the earthly paradise which was lost by the sin of the first Adam. Here is another paradise restored by the second Adam, Jesus. A paradise in a city or a whole city in a paradise. I love how even he's confused. That dude knew the Bible. <laughs> In the first paradise, there were only two persons to behold the beauty and taste the pleasures of it. But in this second paradise, whole cities and nations shall find abundant delight and satisfaction. This is the hope that we look to this morning. The only other thing I want to be clear about, and this is very important, is that these promises are for all people but they will not be experienced by all people. This entire book is, is intending to do, just as the whole Bible is intending to do two things. It's warning people who are not following Jesus that there is no other way to make it to the celestial city. There's no other way to escape the judgment that is to come. And it's warning them to turn from their sin and to believe upon Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you know yourself to not be a Christian, you're welcome to be here. We're thankful that you're here. But I want you to hear that these promises can be yours, but they are not yours unless you turn from your sin and trust in Christ. So hear this as an invitation to come to this land that is the hope of every heart, whether we know it or not. It's also intended to fuel the faith of those who do believe which will be what we'll consider for the rest of our time. So to unpack this, we're going to look at three, three observations about life there. The first is that we will delight in God's abundant life. We will delight in God's abundant life. This new world is the land of life. It's a place where where God's people will enjoy God's goodness and partake of God's pleasures, where we will never look over our shoulder in fear ever again. Because every trace of sin and the curse has been overcome. These, this vision here is filled with symbolism, 
communicating the abundant life that Jesus promised that we now, who are in Christ, experience now in part, but know that then we will in full. Those who are in Christ will enjoy a, a world that sounds much like the Garden of Eden. Some have, have called this scene here an escalated Eden, if you will. Now, it's, it's rare for a sequel to be better than the original, right? I mean, Toy Story 2, maybe. Paddington 2, maybe. Some say Godfather 2, doubtful. But here, here the sequel is infinitely better than the original. And God wants us to see that what he has in store for us is better than what we had before. That what was lost was precious. But what is promised is, what is, promised is infinitely more precious. Verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. The Garden of Eden had four rivers flowing through it, but this river is exceedingly better because of its source. It is flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This river will never run dry. This river is promised to ever be flowing and to provide an unending supply of divine refreshment and replenishment for God's people. There's no dry season in this land because it flows from the throne of God. This is the river of the water of life. <laughs> this ain't no Potomac, all right? It's bright as crystal, <laughs> right? There's, there's no pollution in this land. This life-giving stream here, it revives it enlivens the citizens who live there in this heavenly city. This river flows from God's throne through the middle of the street of the city. If you want to start a city, the first thing you've got to find is what? You've got to find a water source. Because if you've got no water source, you can have great buildings, but everybody's going to be dead, right? You need, you need water. First thing you do is look for water. If not, you die. Well, there's no threat to the water supply for this city because it eternally springs from God's presence. So you can settle there in confidence and hope and no fear. Now, where is this in the Old Testament? Well, of course it's in Genesis 2. We just talked about that. But it's, it's not only in Genesis 2. This echoes in the law and the Psalms and the prophets. In, in, in the law, you have the, in the book of Leviticus, you find that washing with water cleanses people from impurity. It opens the door for, for fellowship with God and with, with one another. This is, this is what's pictured in, in baptism. So baptism, when John came on the scene and started baptizing people, it wasn't an all-new concept. There were actually pools at the temple that when you would walk up to the temple, you would get washed in them as a picture of ritualistic cleansing so that you could approach the temple clean. It is a ritualistic picture. Well, this, this fellowship that's granted between, 
people and, and God through the cleansing is, is here envisioned with this, this river that washes people clean. It's also in the Psalm, Psalm 46.4. We, we read that we read this morning that gladness and help and security are associated with this river flowing from God's presence, right? There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. The holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. This river that God's people have sung about for thousands of years here, pictured. And then it's in the prophets. Joel 3, Zechariah 14, Ezekiel 47, all foretell of a a river flowing from the temple of God in Jerusalem during these last days. And it's really interesting in the Ezekiel scene, Ezekiel 47, uh, the whole chapter is kind of about this, this river. Uh, about midway through verse 12, it paints a, ver- a vivid picture that's echoed here in our text. This is Ezekiel. He says, on the, on the, I was on the banks. On both sides of the river, there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor will their fruit fail, but they will bear fresh fruit every month because the water for them flows from the sanctuary, from the throne of God. Their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. It's exactly what John sees here in his vision. This river of God feeds the grove of God's life-giving trees. And we see these trees here, verse 2, on either side of the river, the tree of life. Now, if you've ever tried to think about what this would look like, you must have probably asked, how can a tree grow on both sides of the river? What's that look like? And I've seen some interesting pictures, you know, with just, it becomes a bridge and there's roots that go down on either side and there's all kinds of stuff, right? So in one sense, we don't know, but I think Ezekiel helped us here, didn't he? He helps us see that these are trees growing on both sides of the river, and John is likely referring to this collectively to a group of trees. In the same way that you might say, as one commentator helped me with, if if there was a grove full of oak trees, you might call it an oak grove, singularly. This is the same picture here that I think we have of this tree, which which again is an escalation of Eden. In Eden, you had one tree. Though there were many trees that you can enjoy, here, all the trees you can enjoy, there's no tree of the knowledge of good and evil because we've already known what evil can do and we don't have anything to do with it anymore and God has gotten rid of it forevermore. And now every tree is a tree of life. And it has 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. This land of abundant life will be continually filled with life-giving, soul-satisfying provision from God. His presence and his perfections furnish this land with life and with glory and with blessing. And you notice who all is taking part of this blessing? The nations are here. People from every tribe and tongue and ethnic group All the nations are indeed here, just as God promised Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant, right? Land, seed, and blessing. Through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. This right here is a picture of the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant. 
God gave him a land here, and he's filled it with offspring, and they all know the blessing of God. God keeps his promises. In verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. In this land of abundant life, there will no longer be any curse. Now, we can't fathom what it will be like to live in a world where there will be no curse. Because literally everything that we know and we experience in this life, no matter how good it is, is tainted by the curse of sin. Everything. You can't escape it. Over, over Thanksgiving, we were playing uh, a game of football with the kids. Um, and it was, uh, so Haddon and who, I forget who else was on my team, but we were playing against Simeon was with, uh, I think, Phoebe and Eden. Either way. So we hand it off to Simeon. He's our littlest, right? And he, he, cuts, he cuts outside his blockers, and he's going, and he's running up and had, you know, just two-hand touch. It's gentle. It was, you're okay, buddy. He touched him. All right, it was a two-hand touch. But poor Simeon fell right into a mountain cactus. It was not intentional. And... Uh, Poor Simbo, he landed and he just jumped up and he cried and he looked at his hand and we looked at this mountain cactus. I'm like, ah. And Haddon, the first thing he said was, I hate sin. <laughs> it's true, bro. Yes. Amen. His mama taught him well. That's right. <laughs> but that's everything, isn't it? I mean, Every good thing is tainted by remembrances. There's, a, there's sin in this world, even the sweetest of things. Well, in this land, there will be perfect and complete freedom from everything evil. No more serpent or sin. No more temptation or trial. No more cancer or slander. No more grief or gossip. No more broken relationships or paper jams. No more betrayals. No more blasphemy. No more lies. No more liars. No more fake news. No more fake friends. No more Alzheimer's or aging. No more taxes or terrorists. No more evil desires or addictions. No more shame. This morning while I was working on this sermon, I was just reminded of some wicked things I had done. And I just thought, I just wanted to never be there anymore. I just don't even want to think about it ever again. No more shame. No more guilt. No more insecurities. No more regret. No more pain. No more persecution. No more fear. No more anxiety. No more depression. No more failing bodies or funerals for loved ones. No more wishing for our own funerals because life is so hard. God's going to fix it all. 
everything. He's going to fix the whole thing. This, by the way, is why the physical resurrection of Jesus is so important. This is why the resurrection, the physical resurrection of Jesus and his people are central to Christianity. Some mere spiritual resurrection in which Christ raises metaphorically and as long as our hope is lifted and our spirits are raised with him, that's good enough. That doesn't save anybody. And there's no hope in that. You see, Jesus came to fix what sin broke. As far as the curse is found, Jesus came to fix. So when he went into the grave and he rose from the grave, it's called the first fruits of the harvest. Because one day, soon and very soon, he is going to raise every single person who has ever been buried in the ground and he will raise them up. And for those who have not trusted in Christ, they will be judged and they will be cast into a lake of fire and God's wrath will be poured out forever and ever. We have seen much of that through this book. Sin will not boast in hell. It will be proven guilty. And for those who trust in Christ, the redeemed, the forgiven, they will celebrate God's mercy because he will raise them from the grave and they'll get a new body and you won't even want to sin anymore. <laughs> and you'll be with him. As far as the curse is found, if you can trace it, God's going to fix it. Every bit of it. Now, a question you might ask is, since there's going to be no hunger or harm there, since there's going to be no sin or sickness there, since there's going to be no disease or death there, how should we understand these fruits and these leaves? What, what does this mean? How are we going to eat when we're not hungry? We're going to get healed when we're not sick? What's that mean? Well, certainly there's going to be eating and drinking in the new heven and the new earth. Isaiah 25.6 foretells of the feast of Mount Zion. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow, of aged wine well refined. So in that land, we will continually feast, and we will always have enough. These 12 fruits being produced in 12 months, I think certainly there's symbolism here, showing the fullness and the perfect provision of God for the fullness of his people. In this land of life, we will delight in the abundant life that God has promised us in Jesus. These pictures of the river and these trees and the healing and everything here, they represent something infinitely greater than we can comprehend. It's intended to ensure us that, that though right now all of our streams of earthly comfort are muddied, even the best of them, that God has a river of comfort that is clear and satisfying that we can drink of by faith now and that one day soon and very soon we will drink of and we will know a healing that will last forevermore. You'll never have to worry about whether you stay in remission because it's not coming back. That you will be healed and we will abide in that forevermore because of Christ and what he did that he will never fail us. He cares for us now, and he will provide eternal satisfaction in him then. This is indeed the land of abundant life that awaits God's people.
The second thing that we need to see here is that God will dwell, that we will dwell in God's loving presence. We will dwell in God's loving presence. The new world that we see here is a land of love. Jonathan Edwards had a whole sermon on that called Heaven is a a World of Love. And central to it is God himself. We see again that the the verse 1, the river is flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And then verse 3, there will no longer be anything cursed, because, but the, the, the throne of God and the Lamb will be there. God's presence fills this world of love to come. Twice the throne of God and the Lamb is here. This throne has been prominent throughout the book of Revelation some 40 times. In 22 chapters, we hear about the throne of God. Because God's throne represents his his power and his sovereignty and his ruling authority. And we've seen various responses to this throne throughout the book, haven't we? Right? The angels see it as glorious and praise him for it back in chapter 5. I looked and heard around the throne the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. The angels see this throne, and they see it as glorious, and they praise God for it. But we've also seen in chapter 6 that unbelievers see this throne and the judgment that it represents, so they cower. So much so that even when Christ is returning, they called out to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. Anything but worship him, they say to the one who sits on the throne. But the redeemed see this throne, and they see grace. So they sing. Chapter 7, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes, peoples, languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. As we see here, this throne it's intended to provoke a hope in us that, that soon and very soon we will be with God, not by faith, but fully by sight. Notice that, this, that upon this one throne is God the Father and Jesus the Lamb. I cut out a whole section on that. If you want to know more about it, you can email me. I'll, I'll tell you. But there's, there's one throne here. What I want us to think about for just a moment is is to notice how, what Jesus is referred to here as. He's first called the Lamb in chapter 5, where he was presented as a slain lamb who had been raised. Well, here, as we peer into eternity future, we find that Jesus is and forever will be known as the Lamb. That means forever we will know Jesus as the suffering servant king who loved us and who laid down his life for us and who was raised for us and for eternity will bear the marks of our salvation. And when we see him in glory and see him as a slain lamb who's raised, it won't induce shame and guilt but rather it will remind us of forgiveness and reconciliation. 
We won't be shamed by the wounds that our sin put upon him. But rather, we will know that in that place, we have been invited there into his loving presence with open arms. The God who sits on the throne will not use his power to punish us, but because we have believed in Jesus who is punished in our place, he welcomes us as pardoned people and his beloved bride. God will not hold you at a distance in that land. He will invite you to come close. You will not feel rejected any longer. We will, verse 4, see his face. This is the, the pinnacle of all of God's promises. There is nothing that God can give us that is sweeter than himself. And here he promises to give us himself. He lays before our hearts the most precious hope. This we had in the Garden of Eden. Something I was thinking about when we see God's face here in Revelation 22.4 was back in Revelation, or Genesis chapter 2. Do you remember how God created Adam? The Lord God formed the man of the dust from the ground and he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living being. The beginning of human history it, it, it starts with God forming our first father, Adam, and breathing into his nostrils the breath of life. Some theologians have called that the kiss of life. It's like God had him face to face and gave him life. And then we threw it away with sin. And now here, he brings us close again. And he says, see my face. God is now, of course, unseen to us, so much so that at times I suspect all of us, most of us, can even wonder if he's there. This week I had a fleeting thought, what if all this isn't true? I think that's natural for anybody. So you grab God's word and you say, Lord, show me yourself. I confess, I believe, help my unbelief. And that's all we can do. And he does help his children with promises like these that take us up to a mountain called Clear, which is much different than the other mountain. You'll remember when Moses was on Mount Sinai, his, God's holiness forbid even Moses from seeing him. Exodus 33, 2, God said to Moses, who, by the way, was the most humble, holy man on the planet, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. What a sorrowful thought. I mean, we know some of you have probably maybe experienced this. We certainly know of people who have experienced having loved ones sick during this pandemic. You can't see them face to face. Stories of, of loved ones burying loved ones and not even having been able to be there with them. As tragic as that is, how much more would they were unable to see the face of our God? But this is why Jesus came. 
John 1.14, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Father, Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus came to show us God, to reveal the one who is concealed. He did that in his life and in his teaching. This is why Jesus died and he rose. 1 Peter 3.18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous, him, for the unrighteous, us, that he might bring us to God. This is the gospel. This is the good news, that though we have sinned and deserve God's wrath and deserve in our unrighteousness to be banished away from his presence forevermore, Jesus suffered and died and rose to reconcile us. The word reconcile, to make enemy, friends, that we become friends of God through Christ. We get God. And this is why Jesus will return soon. The book of Revelation is pointing us to the same thing the Apostle Paul said in Philippians 3.20. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior. We await. What's a Christian doing right now? You're listening to a sermon, but hopefully what you're doing in and through it is you're cultivating an awaitingness. You want him. Give me word to teach me more about him. That's what's happening right now. This is why we do this. It's why we sing. It's why we pray. We want our, our, our hearts to be cultivated to wait with fullness of anticipation. We await the Lord Jesus Christ who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. Soon Jesus will come and he will cleanse us completely of all abiding sin and he will clothe us in his righteousness, which we have now positionally, but then we will have practically and he will draw us into God's presence and we will see his face. See him, know him, enjoy him forever. Now how do you see God's face? God's a spirit. I don't know. It's, it's certainly metaphorical on some level. But whatever it means... It's better than what we could hope for. 1 Corinthians 13, 12. Now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. So though we can't understand exactly what it means, he wants us, he gives us this metaphor to say, it's like you're going to see me face to face. Whatever that is, it's going to be worth it. God will draw us close to himself. And in those days, we'll find the fulfillment of being known in a way that you always wished you could be. Have you ever just felt like nobody gets you? One day, if you are in Christ, you will be face to face with the one who knits you in your mother's womb. And he will complete the fulfillment and the utter joy, the incomprehensible peace of being known and knowing him. We will be with the one who loves us and with the one we love. Which, by the way, I just want to say to those of you this morning who are far from God, either as an unbeliever who knows yourself to be far from God, or maybe you are a believer who's been chasing sin and you've been hardening your heart against God, I want you to know 
that what you're looking for in your sinning is this scene right here. It's a perversion of it. Listen to what Augustine said in his confessions. He said, because you have made us for yourself, our hearts are restless till they find their rest in thee. Because you made us for yourself, our hearts are restless until they rest in you. So whatever you're chasing for satisfaction, that promotion, that house, that car, that food, sexual escapades, vacation, applause, affirmation, fitness, whatever it is, nothing will satisfy you other than the face of God. And this is why Jesus calls us to holiness now. Matthew 5.8, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. This is the promise that's laid before us, calling us to pursue holiness now so that we can all the more experientially, by faith, know him now and have the assurance of knowing him then. All of this is intended to stir a hope in him. Because 1 John 3, 3 says, everyone who thus hopes in him and his return and becoming like him purifies himself even as he is pure. Seeing God in his holiness like this is intended to provoke our hope to want to be in that land, to want to be with him. And whatever temptations are going to try and pull me away from that, I want to say, no, it's not worth it. I want him, which now by faith, it's very hard which is why you can't do it alone, which is all of this is written to churches filled with members who help each other to keep eyes up and to keep guards up against sin and to keep hearts open before one another, confessing our sin and asking for encouragement and encouraging one another. Doing what Hopeful and Christian did, going up to a mountain called Clear, opening the book and saying, God, help us. We do that all the way home. Which brings us to the third and final observation here, that we will display God's eternal glory. We will display God's eternal glory. This new world is a land of worshipful service. It's a place where we will be with God, united to God, with one another, united to one another for the great end of serving God's eternal purposes in this new heaven and the new earth. Well, what will we do there? Well, there's four descriptions of what we will be like there and what we'll be doing there. The first is that we will belong to God. Verse 3, his name will be on our foreheads. His name will be on our foreheads. God will put his name on us. This highlights our intimate fellowship with God. We saw this in chapter 7 and chapter 14 when the Holy Spirit seals believers um, in salvation. They, he does it by putting God's name on them rather than getting the mark of the beast, allegiance to the world, which if you weren't here for that, we said that that's not having an iPhone or getting a vaccine or whatever else people say it might be. Rather, it's allegiance to the way of the world. Here, the allegiance to God it is made clear that God makes an allegiance to us, you're mine, and then we will forever bear and say we are his. <laughs> I don't know about y'all, but I wouldn't want to put my name on me, <laughs> but the Lord does. He says, that one's mine. How merciful of the Lord. 
Certainly a clear connection also with the Old Testament in Ezekiel 20, uh, Ezekiel, uh, Exodus 28 with the high priest who had holy to the Lord on his forehead, representing all of God's people. Well, here we will be holy unto the Lord, marked as his forevermore. We will serve God, so we will belong to God. We will also serve God, verse 4. We are referred to as his servants there in verse 4. In Genesis 2.15, God placed Adam in the garden to cultivate and to keep it. Those two words, by the way, are used by, of priests of God serving in the tabernacle. Adam was a type of priest in the temple of Eden, if you will. Now we serve as God's priests in his kingdom, and one day we will, in the new heavens and the new earth, be his servants serving there. Does this mean that we will work in glory? Indeed. You're like, what? Well, believe it or not, work was around before the curse. We're not just going to be floating on clouds singing all day. God created us to work Work is not a result of the fall. It's just hard because of the fall. There will be whatever we'll be doing with God for his, and his purposes of his in the new heaven and the new earth. We will be serving him, entrusted with responsibility, and everything that we do will not be marked by obstacles and trouble and thorns and thistles, but rather it will be marked by fulfillment and enjoyment because we do it with God. I don't know what it is for you, but like sometimes if I mow the grass and I'm done and it looks right, I'm like, it is good. It's like if you paint something and it comes out like you want it to be, it's good. If you write something, you write a paper and you're like, that was it. Whatever it may be, whatever that sense of fulfillment is, for all of eternity, we will serve him and know that fulfillment of having purpose in him and for him. We will serve God. We will also worship God thirdly here. We will worship God, verse 4, his servants will worship him. Whatever unhindered, unfiltered exposure to the beauty of God and the wisdom of God and hearing how his plan in this life and for eternity all works together, <laughs> Psalm 44, 8 says, we will thank you forever. So in the midst of our working, you know how you whistle with you when you work? Well, in glory, we'll worship while we work. Whatever that means, we will, we, will, we will sing to him. We will delight in him. We will worship him. Not only that, but we will reign with God. So we will display God's eternal glory by belonging to him, to serving him, to worshiping him, and we will reign with him. Verse 5 and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Every time the sun comes up, we are reminded of faithfulness, and we need that sun to give us light, or otherwise we're in the darkness. Well, in this land, there'll be no more sun. It won't be needed anymore because the, his presence gives life. His, his glory gives light and it never sets in this land. It's like Alaska in July, always day, except better. There's no huge mosquitoes there. But in this land, it'll be perfect. And we will reign with him. Where the fullness of who God is will be manifested in his people who have been made like him. Enjoying him, declaring his glory. 
that will testify against this brief age of evil that mocked everything that was about God, that scorned his name and blasphemed his name and took it in vain, that it seemed to be reigning over God's people. All the tombstones that used to boast, mocking us for our dead loved ones, they will all be overturned as far as the curse is found. And we will join God in his eternal reign of glory, celebrating him forevermore. The primary thing that this text is, many things, but one of the primary things this text is intended to do is the same thing that it was intended to do for Christian and hopeful when they were taken up to the hill called Clear. It's intended to give us a vision of that final city that is to provoke us to keep trusting him now. I encourage you maybe later today to go back and to look at the the seven churches of Revelation. Remember, this letter, this book, this vision was given to seven churches. If you look at the conclusion, Jesus, Jesus promises each of those churches something. They're all fulfilled in Revelation chapter uh, 20 through 22. Four of the promises about a tree of life, about ruling with him, about our name being on him, about sitting with him on his throne, four of them are found in these five verses. What it's intended to do is it takes our limited hearts and minds And it takes us into eternity future. And it gives us a glimpse. Though shaky because of all of our weaknesses and sufferings here, just as it was for hopeful and Christian, but it gives us a glimpse of the city that's intended to strengthen us back here in these days. So that when we say our amen and we go out, that we're willing and encouraged to keep taking steps together until we make it home. Friends, Don't lose heart. We're almost home.